Welcome to Teaching Through the Bible with Dr. Ken Sullivan. As a veteran senior pastor, Dr. Sullivan understands the importance of Bible teaching in the spiritual growth and development of God's people. Dr. Sullivan's method of teaching the Bible is to read and carefully explain each chapter and verse in clear and understandable terms so the student of the Bible gains the full understanding of God's Word. Now prepare yourself to learn and grow as Dr. Sullivan teaches through the Bible. Well, welcome to another session of Teaching Through the Bible. I'm Dr. Kenneth Sullivan. Well, today we'll begin studying a brand new book of the Bible, the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're starting in chapter 1. Now, I'll be teaching from the New Living Translation to make things as clear and understandable as possible. So, let's begin with a little background information on this book of 1 Corinthians. Paul the Apostle established a number of churches during his three missionary journeys, including the church of Corinth. Uh, On his second of three missionary journeys after leaving Athens, Paul visited the wealthy, thriving seaport city of uh, Corinth. It's a four-mile isthmus that uh, joins Greece and Achaia. Corinth was an important shipping hub. Uh, In addition to being an important center for uh, common trade and and commerce, Corinth was a manufacturer of bronze, a a metal heavily relied upon in uh, in, in, the construction of Roman architecture in that day. The city of Corinth was probably as much known for its sexual immorality as anything else. Um, To be called a Corinthian was tantamount to being called a person of loose morals. Uh, The temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of fertility, housed male and female prostitutes and and could be seen for miles from from its place on the side of a prominent mountain overlooking the the city of Corinth. Now, um, because of its moral decadence, Corinth was visited by people from all over the Roman Empire. This uh, contributed to its uh, cultural and uh, ethnic uh, diversity, uh, as well as its great commerce. Now, Paul's custom when he went uh, to minister was to visit uh, a local synagogue. First, he went to the Jews. So he'd visit a local synagogue and preach to the Jews first. And when his message was usually rejected, he, he began to preach to the Gentiles. Now, in Corinth, a man named Titius Justus lived right next door to the Jewish synagogue, and, and he allowed Paul to begin preaching there after he was re- rejected by the Jewish people. And Paul spent a whole year, a year and a half, preaching and teaching the word of God to the people at Corinth. And the church of Corinth was established around uh, A.D. 52. Now, after establishing the church of Corinth, Paul moved on to continue his work uh, in other regions. While he was in Ephesus, he received disturbing news about the Corinthian church. Uh, uh, It was in response to this bad news that, that he wrote this letter to the to the saints at Corinth, and the letter was written around A.D. 55. Now let's begin our study, beginning with the uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I'm reading in again in the New Living Translation, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God, 
to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and from our brother Sosthenes. We are writing to the church of God in Corinth, you who have been called by God to be his own holy people. He made you holy by means of Christ Jesus, just as he did all Christians everywhere. Whoever calls upon the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and theirs. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you his grace and peace. Now, um, Paul's purpose for existing, his purpose for living was to serve as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was intensely focused upon his purpose and and his keen focus is readily apparent in, in all his letters to the churches. You can see it. All the churches under his care, he mentioned his apostleship. His purpose as an apostle was to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever he was and, and, and wherever he was sent by God and to organize new believers into local churches. That's what he did. That, that was the work of an apostle. Uh, and then he had the responsibility of teaching the people in those churches, how to live this new Christian life. Paul uh, went on to remind the Corinthian saints that they were made holy or, or they were sanctified by Christ Jesus in the same way that everyone who turns to God and calls upon the name of Jesus Christ will be sanctified. And you can find that in Acts chapter 2, verse 21. Now, to be sanctified or holy means to be specially set apart for God and to be washed and cleansed from sin. In just a few words, Paul launches in and he preached uh, Christ as our Savior and as our sustainer. And, and he reminds the reader that we, uh, that we are what we are because of Christ. Now, Paul mentions a, a, a man named Sosthenes who was likely a close companion and perhaps a scribe who, who wrote his letters as he dictated it. Paul's method was to dictate the letter. He'd have a, a scribe to write the letter, and then he would uh, often sign his name at the end of the letter. Now, in verse 3, Paul expressed his desire for God's grace and peace to be upon them. Grace is the favor and kindness of God which is bestowed upon us without merit. In other words, we don't have to earn it. We don't earn God's grace. He just extends it to us. God extends his favor to us, not because of anything that we have done or, to, uh, or anything that we may think we've done to earn it, but just because he loves us, he extends this grace to us. It's just like a uh, a parent, when you have a child, the child doesn't have to do anything to merit your love and merit your favor. Because you love them, you do good by them. You favor them. It's your child. You picked your child out in the bunch of a whole other, a bunch of whole other children. You see the, the unique qualities of your child. That's your child. And that's the way God looks at us. Now, one very important way that this grace of God is demonstrated in our lives is through the ability that he gives to us to do his will. We have the grace to do what God has called and chosen us to do. He gives us ability. He anoints us or enables us to do the things that he called us to do. Of course, sometimes when God gives us gifts, things, and callings, 
He wants us to cultivate that through through study and learning and practice, of course. But but uh, he gives us these these grace gifts just because he loves us, and uh, we don't do anything to earn it. Now, the peace that Paul spoke of is the is the inner peace that every Christian should enjoy. This peace is maintained. You can keep it up through regular communication with God. You feel yourself slinking into depression. You need to spend time in God's presence and, and, and in his word. Um, through prayer, through reading the scripture, uh, we can stoke our, our, our peace and we can even uh, build up our joy. Now, when we have this inner peace, we have a positive outlook on life. We're able to face the challenges that are common to the Christian life with an inner assurance that everything is going to be all right. And uh, sometimes when you're troubled in your life and and you you feel uh, unhinged or uh, disjointed, I won't say unhinged, but, but you feel out of sorts and you just feel a little down and depressed, then you need to oil yourself up with, with prayer and get in the presence of God and and uh, stoke that peace, and he'll bring that peace, and he'll bring that joy. Jesus promised that this kind of inner peace would come to his followers. Jesus said in John chapter 14, peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. That's John 14, 27 in the King James Version. So uh, in addition to inner peace, Paul also desired that God's people would enjoy peace and harmony in our circumstances, that, in, our, in the circumstances of our life, not just inside, but, but Paul wanted us, uh, and, and certainly God did, and Paul is just expressing the, expressing the will of God in his letter and his, in, in his teaching. But God's desire is for us to have inner peace but he also wants us to have surrounding peace. He wants us to have peace in our environment. Paul understood that by maintaining the right attitude and conducting ourselves in the right way, in a peaceful manner, we can often create a peaceful atmosphere, a peaceful environment. The Bible says, blessed is the peacemaker. Uh, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the, the, the children of God. So we can come into an environment that may be chaotic, but we can exert our peace upon that situation in, 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 in many instances, not in all cases, but, but we can promote peace, in other words. The Apostle James wisely said, and those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a, a, a harvest of goodness. That's James 3.18 in the New Living Translation. So, God wants his people to promote peace. He wants us to be promoters of peace and we can impact the atmosphere. We can impact the environment around us, um, in our families, in our homes. You can, um, you can dial uh, chaos and confusion down just by not contributing to it. If someone is coming at you in, in the wrong way, all you have to do is just be quiet. Don't put wood on the fire. Just don't just don't respond in a, in a in an antagonistic way. Now I'm reading verses four through seven. I can never stop thanking God for all the generous gifts He has given you. Now that you belong to Christ Jesus, 
He has enriched your church with the gifts of eloquence and every kind of knowledge. This shows that what I told you about Christ is true. Now you have every spiritual gift you need as you eagerly wait for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's 1 Corinthians again, uh, chapter 1, verses 4 through 7. Now, Paul's statement in verse 4 strongly suggests that once we become Christians, we can expect God to impart generous gifts to us. Uh, Paul enumerated some of, some of those gifts in chapter 12 in the book of Ephesians uh, 4 and uh, 8 through 11. There are certainly gifts that Paul did not mention in, in either of these epistles. In addition to the spiritual gifts, uh, God also provides many natural gifts and blessings that that serve to demonstrate his love and, and his concern for us. Some of us have uh, uh, athletic ability. That's a gift from God. Some of us have uh, the gift to sing, or we may have musical talent. And those were not mentioned in Paul's list, but God gives us all kinds of gifts and natural talents to bless people and to bless the kingdom of God. Now, during the 18th months that the, the 18 months that Paul had spent in Corinth, um, preaching and teaching the word of God, he predicted that God would call the church to grow, the Corinthian church to grow in their knowledge and provide them with many spiritual gifts. And, and he mentioned the fact that uh, they were now enjoying these promised gifts and, and that, uh, that uh, Paul used the, the fact to confirm the accuracy of his, his prediction, that fact that that he told them that they would grow, and he told them beforehand that they would have these gifts, and uh, and now those gifts were showing up in the church, and they were manifesting themselves in the lives of the people. Um, these gifts and the work that God had done in in their lives were evidence of of, of the presence and the power of God among uh, among them, the, the Corinthians, and and so it is the same with us when God manifests Himself in in uh, in our lives through the, the gifts of the spirit and, and other giftings that may be natural gifting, God is, is demonstrating his presence with us. Now, God gives gift to every church he establishes. The Corinthian church was rich with gifts of utterance. That is, that is uh, the gift of tongues and interpretation and prophecy. That is the, the speech gifts, uh, preaching and teaching. And additionally, Paul commended them on possessing the gift of knowledge. And these gifts were to be used to edify the body of Christ uh, as they waited for Christ's return. Now, Paul was careful to cultivate an earnest desire in the saints at Corinth for the return of Christ. In other words, he wanted them to be looking forward to the, the return of Christ. Um, in all the churches that he led, he told them about Christ and his return. He enlightened them. He didn't want them to be ignorant. He wanted them to be aware that Jesus was coming again. And true to his heavenward focus, he urged the church at Corinth to eagerly wait for the second coming of Christ, our Savior. Now, and this should be our attitude as well as the people of God. Uh, we shouldn't shudder at the thought of Jesus' return because when he comes back, he's going to take over rulership of this planet. He's going to He's going to make all things new. 
and he's going to rule in righteousness. There won't be any more corrupt government. There won't be any more corrupt government officials. There won't be uh, uh, any uh, sin in the world. God is going to rule over a kingdom of righteousness. There will be peace even in the animal world. So Paul is telling us to look forward to the return of Christ. We should live our lives in such a way that we're demonstrating that we're anticipating his coming. While we enjoy the blessings and the benefits that God provides us here on this earth, we should make it a practice to reflect upon the words that Paul wrote to the saints in Philippi. And I'm quoting these, Philippians chapter 3. He says, we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ is, and we're eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. That's Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 in the New Living Translation. Now I'm reading verses eight and nine. He will keep you strong right up to the end. And he will keep you free from all blame on the great day when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. God will surely do this for you. For he always does what he says. And he is the one who invited you into this wonderful friendship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's 1 Corinthians 1 and 8 and 9, okay? So we have God's assurance that he will keep us strong and blameless right up until the day of Jesus's return. We are under God's watchful eye and we're under his care uh, and he's involved in our lives. Even when we don't realize that God is involved in our lives, he's leading us and guiding us and directing us. And he's working in our lives when we don't uh, even realize it because his working in us is so subtle. Every time you have a desire to do what is right, God is working in you, uh, giving you that desire. Every time you desire to, to move in the right direction and to submit to his will, to obey him, he's working in you. Now, of course, God admonishes us to establish spiritual disciplines in our lives which allows us uh, to work with him uh, in our own spiritual growth. So when we um, read the word of God and uh, we, we spend time in prayer and, and we go to church, uh, sit under the preaching and teaching, uh, we listen to gospel music and we listen to uh, good teaching on the radio or wherever we can find it, good teaching, we are cooperating with the Holy Spirit in our own spiritual growth. We're helping in our own development. Now, uh, however, we are relying upon God to help us even in the area of self-discipline. So uh, we have to pray that God gives us the strength and the discipline to do the things that we want to, that, that we do that, that's in his will. We should pray for God's strength and, and, and we should use that strength, the strength that he gives to us uh, uh, for spiritual discipline, to engage in prayer and fellowship and, and obedience and witnessing and, and all of these kinds of things. This will require self-control, which is one of the fruits or products of the spirit in the life of a Christian. So we should seek God for this fruit, the fruit uh, to, uh, to exercise um, righteousness and godliness in our lives, and we should act for, ask for his discipline and his strength. Remember that the ability to discipline ourselves is not the product of just merely willpower, but it's the fruit of God's spirit 
that's operating in us. So we need God from first to last. We need him to help us to uh, help us to discipline ourselves and to do the things that we need to do. Now, when God releases his power in our lives, it's often so subtle that we're, we're led to think that we're doing it by our own willpower. We think it's our will, our power that has, has brought us to this place of accomplishment and achievement as a result, as it relates to spiritual things. Uh, we, we shouldn't get, um, lifted up in pride, thinking that we we are all that because we do pray, we do read the word, we do go to church, can't look down on other people because uh, it is even God helping us to do that. So we should um, stay humble and give thanks to God if we have the, the discipline to discipline ourselves and to read and study and pray like we should, attend church and and do the things that God commands us to do. And God grants us that by his spirit. Now, occasionally, God will allow us to struggle with trying to overcome certain challenges or sins in our lives while using our own strength and willpower. Uh, if we're really just, uh, especially if we've gotten lifted up in pride, sometimes the Lord will, will uh, let us flounder some until we, humble ourselves and realize that our accomplishments are not our accomplishments. They are his accomplishments in us and through us. And, and when we um, become frustrated over our failure, we can humble ourselves and seek him and acknowledge that we're not living holy and righteous lives through sheer willpower. We're able to live, to turn away from sin, the old things that we used to do. We're able to do that by the power of the Holy Spirit that's working in us, okay? So this, uh, our failure sometimes when we get uh, maybe a little cocky, a little bit prideful, um, you know, like, like, like a rooster, and we begin to strut our stuff, and sometimes God will uh, allow our weakness to overtake us, and he'll even allow us to, 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 to uh, flounder and, and, and perhaps even fall. And then when we fall, then we humble ourselves and go to him and he releases his strength and he gives us the power to overcome the things that we're struggling with. Now I'm reading verses 10 through 13. Now, dear brothers and sisters, I appeal to you by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ to stop arguing among yourselves, that there be real harmony so that there won't be divisions in the church. I plead with you to be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. For some members of Chloe's household have told me about your arguments, dear brothers and sisters. Some of you are saying, I'm a follower of Paul. Others are saying, I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, or I follow only Christ. Can Christ be divided into pieces? Was I, Paul, crucified for you? Were any of you baptized in the name of Paul? Okay. Now, the church at Corinth was a diverse church. There were varieties of cultural and social and financial backgrounds. And Paul was trying to teach all these different people from all of these different backgrounds to act like one family and not, uh, and not just any family, but a loving, godly family. So 
they had to learn to think in a different way. And, and so do we as Christians today. Uh, they had to open up rather than thinking and acting in their own individual interests. Um, they had to begin to think and act uh, in a unified way in the interest of the entire family. This challenged and it stretched their capacity for self-denial. So they had to learn how to deny themselves and allow for other people's thoughts and, and needs and issues. It couldn't all be about just them. And so Paul was uh, trying to shape them into that family. This was a new and foreign way of life for many of, of these members of the church, uh, a, a life of selflessness. Many had come from a, a lifestyle where quarreling and fighting and division was a way of life. And, and, and the rule of life was self-interest above the interest of other people. That's the way they live. These Christians had been born again and had the spirit of God, but they had to learn how to walk in submission and obedience to the Holy Spirit. They would need the help of the spirit and, and, and a great deal of coaching from uh, Paul, their strong leader like Paul, to make these kinds of lifestyle changes. And it's the same with us. That's why it's important to, uh, to be the member of a church, to go to church, because God has given pastors and other ministers as coaches in, in your life. Imagine um, trying to win a basketball tournament with no coach. Um, just a bunch of people get together and say, we're going to form this team, but we're not going to have a coach. We're just going to decide everything for ourselves and we're going to, um, uh, uh, you know, seek after our own agenda. We're going to pursue our own agenda. That's the word I'm looking for. Uh, they wouldn't win anything. You have to have coaches to train and to teach and to discipline to bring out the best uh, in a team player, in a team. And that's the way it is with God. He gives us coaches, pastors and other ministers are coaches that help us to, to, uh, to be the best that we can be and to win. Uh, and so Paul was uh, coaching these people and trying to uh, shape them into what God wanted them to be and what he purposed for them to be. The division in the Corinth, uh, in the Corinthian church was so great that someone felt that it needed to be reported to Paul, someone named Chloe. Uh, people were taking pride in leaders that they admired, but, but their divisive conduct was was a disappointment to the very leaders that that they aspired to be like. Uh, some were saying, "I follow Paul." Some were saying, "I follow Cephas." That's Peter, and some were saying, "I follow Apollos." So they were dividing up in all of these ways, and and Paul was telling them, "That's not the way." Uh, uh, neither I nor Peter nor Apollos would want you dividing up and, and showing your allegiance to one against another. That's not what God is about. He's not about division. God is about unity. Paul and Apollos and, and Peter were, were uh, they were not divided. They were not about division. So Paul wanted to make it unequivocally clear to uh, the saints at Corinth that he didn't approve of being exalted to the to the same arena and status as Christ. So Paul said, "I, um, you are not baptized in my name. Um, you are children of God, not children of Paul. 
So he reminded the Corinthians um, of the awful price that Jesus Christ paid. He said, was I crucified for you? Were you baptized in my name? No, it was Jesus Christ who died for you. It was, you were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? So um, he was the one that was willing to pay that awful price to redeem us. And so Paul had to bring them back to reality and to chide them about this division that they were engendering in the church. Now, it's not wrong to give honor and respect to people who are deserving of it, but it, it's idolatry to to elevate any human being, even to the, the arena of Christ. Uh, um, no human being should compete with Christ. I mean, while we may disagree on non-essentials as Christians, we're, we're from different backgrounds and maybe even different denominations, but we're all one family. And while we may disagree on non-essentials, these disagreements should not be points of division. We shouldn't divide over them. We shouldn't allow them to separate us. Christ will come again. And when he does, uh, he will receive people out of every denomination as well as those who uh, are in independent churches, have no denominational affiliation. So we deceive ourselves when we think our denomination has a monopoly on Christ or our little group. Uh, we are the ones who have Christ and no one else does. That's, that's a deception, that's self-delusion. Now I'm reading verses 14 through 17. I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. For now, no one can say that we were baptized, that they were baptized in my name. Oh yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. I don't remember baptizing anyone else, for Christ didn't send me to baptize but to preach the good news and not with clever speeches and high sounding ideas for fear that the cross of Christ would lose its power. Okay. So now Paul administered a kind of backhanded rebuke to the Corinthians for their hero worship, um, suggesting that they were so carried away um, that they were capable of making the claim that he baptize them. He's saying, it's, he's, he's being a little sarcastic, you might say, uh, here, but he's rebuking them for, for dividing over leaders and, and uh, uh, dividing the church. So Paul, uh, his, his mention of clever speeches, he said, I didn't, uh, I didn't use high-sounding words, clever speeches, um, high-sounding ideas. It suggests that the Corinthians placed a higher value upon oratory skills than, than the message itself. And we have to be careful that uh, uh, we don't celebrate the skill over the message. The power is in the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what these uh, Corinthians were doing. Uh, they were lining up behind leaders because of, of their uh, charisma or their oratory skills. And so Paul chose to keep his message, his message when he preached simple and, and straightforward as a safeguard against diluting his strength. Uh, he's, uh, he wanted the power to, to be on Christ and the message, and, and uh, he didn't want the people to be uh, standing on his oratory skills. While oratory skills 
good speaking skills should be cultivated and developed. They should be. The speaker must be aware of the danger of, of, of uh, obscuring the message while, while elevating the speaking ability. We want to make sure that we keep the message clear and simple. Uh, I think it's great to preach uh, good fiery messages that move and stir people or or to teach in a way that keep people spellbound. That's wonderful. Uh, but we have to make sure that in the process of doing that, that, we don't want to obscure the message. We want to make sure that the message about Christ is clear. Okay. Now I'm reading verses 18 through 21. I know very well how foolish the message of the cross sounds to those who are on the road to destruction. But we who are being saved recognize this message as the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy human wisdom and discard their most brilliant ideas. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made them all look foolish and has shown their wisdom to be useless nonsense. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never find him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save all who believe. Now, in Paul's day, as in our times, the message of the cross was perceived as foolishness by many of the people who heard it. The heart of the gospel message is that Christ died for the sins of humanity and rose again from the dead. And, and those who believe this gospel message and become followers of Christ will also be raised from the dead. Now, the concept of, re of the resurrection of the dead is often more than some people can stomach and believe. Death is so final, and the idea of dead people being resurrected is so foreign to many people that they just cannot deal with it. So when they hear that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, uh, they just can't believe it. It sounds to them like foolishness. Paul was probably becoming accustomed to this kind of rejection. He knew that this, uh, his responsibility was to share the message in a clear and per persuasive manner. But he also knew that he could not force anyone to believe the message. So um, people who have trouble with believing the gospel are sometimes hindered from believing by satanic forces. They, they think it's them. They think it's their intellect. But in, in Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth, he informed the readers of the fact that Satan helps people not to believe. Uh, and, and, and this is what he said. In whom the God of this world had blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine to them. That's 2 Corinthians 4 and 4 in the King James Version. The God of this world is Satan. And his method of preventing people from believing the gospel is to blind their minds to the truth. He causes them to believe that they're thinking and acting rationally and intelligently when they refuse to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Accepting the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ requires humble, childlike faith. And it, it, it's something that uh, is impossible for some people. It does not require us to suspend our intellect, but it does require us to be open to the possibility that there are realities that's beyond our experience. And 
And uh, there are things that we just don't know and that we don't understand. So believing and having faith in the message of Christ and in, in Christ requires us to admit that there is a lot that we don't know. Now I'm reading verses 22 through 25. God's way seems foolish to the Jews because they want a sign from heaven to prove it, to prove that it's true. And it is foolish to the Greeks because they believe only what agrees with their own wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But to those called, those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the mighty power of God and the wonderful wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is far wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is far stronger than the greatest human strength. 1 Corinthians 1 and 22 through 25. So God's plan of salvation was labeled by Jews and Greeks as foolishness. The Jews couldn't believe it because they had a tendency to seek for signs to validate their claim. And the Greeks couldn't believe it because uh, they thought of themselves as intellectual. And they, uh, they had to sift everything through their intellectual philosophy. Both of these groups rejected God's wise plan for saving the world and stamped it as nonsense. So uh, in their so-called wisdom, they rejected the greatest demonstration of God's wisdom to save humanity. On the other hand, there were many people, both Jews and Gentiles, who accepted this good news of God's plan of salvation. And, and everyone who believed experienced the power of God in their lives. God's method of saving people was to have Jesus die and rise from the dead to pay for the sins of humanity. And his way of publicizing that was to have people just go and by word of mouth, share their experience and share what had happened to them and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everyone who hears the message and believes it is forgiven of sin, accepted in God's family and in his kingdom and endowed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit immediately begins to work in us, changing our lives and bringing us into line with God's will. Now I'm reading verses 26 through 29. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God deliberately chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they're wise. And he chose those who are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and use them to bring to nothing what the world considers important, so that no one can ever boast in the presence of God. So God uh, deliberately appealed to lowly, downtrodden, poor, and powerless people. He, uh, Christ was born in a stable among poor people, uh, and he carried out his ministry mostly among poor people. Uh, he chose to relate to people who were poor and downtrodden. And by choosing to work with, with the, the ones that the world considered poor and backward people, um, God was making it clear that the things which would be accomplished could not be uh, misinterpreted as, as the work of humanity, but the work of God. And so God would use these same poor people who were despised and rejected to carry the gospel message of Jesus Christ. In his second letter to the church at Corinth, Paul put it this way. 
But this precious treasure, this light and power that now shine within us is held in perishable containers, that is, in weak bodies, so everyone can see that our glorious power is from God and is not our own. Amen. Now I'm reading verses 30 and 31. God alone made it possible for you to be in Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made Christ to be wisdom itself. He is the one who made us acceptable to God. He made us pure and holy, and he gave himself to purchase our freedom. As the scriptures say, the person who wishes to boast should boast only on what the Lord has done. This is the gospel in a nutshell. Christ became wisdom for us in that he is the key, the centerpiece of God's wise plan to save humanity. And in his second epistle to the Corinthians, Paul made the following statement which reveals how Christ traded places with the sinners. Here's what he said. For he had made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Jesus switched positions with sinful humanity, taking on all of our sins. And in, in, in exchange, he gave us his righteousness by offering himself up as a ransom for, for all of us. He brought us sanctification, righteousness, freedom from slavery to sin, and he made us holy and acceptable to God. Well, that brings us to the close of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In our next session, we will study chapter 2. Friends, if, you, if you're ever in the Indianapolis area, I'd like to invite you to come visit us um, at New Direction Church, one of our locations. Our east campus is located at 5330 East 38th Street, and our north campus is located at 7701 East 86th Street. For service times, visit our website at ndcbetterlife.org, ndcbetterlife.org. Please join me next week at the same time for another session of Teaching Through the Bible. And until then, may God bless you. Thank you for tuning in to Teaching Through the Bible with Dr. Ken Sullivan. We hope this program has benefited you in your Christian walk. For a free download of this program and to browse Dr. Sullivan's books, videos, and audio titles, visit our website at EmergeCurriculum.com. Please tune into our next teaching session on Vision Stream Network or listen on demand from our podcast.